so we can praise and thank the Father that we live in a time, we live in the last days where the Spirit of God is with us and within each one of us. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's actually open our Bibles to Titus chapter 3 today. And as you're turning there, we continue to trust God to provide for uh, our fellowship, and we're so thankful for this facility. Uh, if you didn't know, we do have a building fund that we're trusting the Lord to uh, continue to uh, see grow, and uh, we have an active realtor. So continue to pray as we worship the Lord with our giving, and we trust that God's going to open the door for that space. Uh, usually our 1045 service is overflowing, so it's great to see everybody here this morning at the early service. This is great. Uh, so continue to trust the Lord. Let's look at Titus chapter 3. Uh, look at verses 3 through 6. Titus says this, or Paul says this to Titus, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity this morning to uh, open the scriptures, and we pray that you would be glorified. Holy Spirit, as we look at the scriptures concerning, not all of them, but many of them concerning your person and work, we pray that we would have a, a new and true understanding of the work of the Spirit in our own life. We thank you for being active in our salvation, active in our sanctification. And Lord, we're thankful for that one day yet, glorification. And so uh, to that end, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be fixed on the hope that is before us, the hope of eternal life, and that you'd refresh and encourage us. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, Jesus, that you would do that work of saving grace in their life today. So we lift up our sermon to you. We pray that you would be exalted and lifted up as we study your word together in Christ's name. And we all said, amen. Well, before we move on from Romans chapter 8, I felt it would be beneficial for us to just kind of pause for a minute and take a, a, maybe a second look, maybe another view, and just kind of gaze for a minute. This uh, summer, a lot of you know, our family went across the country and we stopped at a few different places along the way to California and on the way back. Um, and one of the places we went to was Yosemite National Park. And uh, there's a view at Yosemite, I'm not gonna put it on the screen, but there's a, you just Google it later. There's a view called Tunnel View. And it kind of is this one shot of the entire park. And what happened is when we got there, we got out of the car and we were just stunned at the beauty of what we were looking at. But what we saw is that it's kind of on the road. And so people were pulling over, jumping out of the car, taking a quick photo, jumping in the car and on to the next site. 
And we just felt like that was a disservice. It's better to stop for a minute and just kind of take a gaze, take a deep breath and watch in wonder. And we would all agree some things are so astounding, so breathtaking, so beautiful, right, that they deserve more than just a quick glance, more than a passing Instagram story. We need to take our time and really reflect. And some people would say, well, I read big chunks of the Bible in my quiet time. That's great. But sometimes we just need to meditate on a verse and just allow that verse to be something we think about all day long. So before we move quickly past or beyond Romans chapter 8, I'd like us to review it one more time this morning and look on purpose for what is mentioned over 20 times in this chapter. It's not the word the, but there is a word that's mentioned multiple times in the chapter. And if you missed this, you weren't looking long enough. Remember when we grew up, we did the Where's Waldo books? Remember that? Anybody remember that? Uh, you, you look for this guy in the striped outfit, and you have to look a little bit longer to see him suddenly jump off the page. And, and so he's there all along, but you missed him. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Romans chapter 8 a little bit towards the end of the sermon. But what I want us to do is look for the person and work of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Um, to do that, though, I want us to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in general. And this is not exhaustive. In other words, we're not going to cover every single uh, passage in the Bible. Uh, but the title of the sermon is A Second Look at the Third Person of the Trinity. And this is going to be a unique one. This is one that we are not really accustomed to here at Shoreline, but I believe it's going to be very beneficial uh, to us. So I told you to look at Titus chapter 3. Uh, and so what I want to do is just for a minute, um, look through this passage and then we'll jump around a little bit. So notice with me again in verse 3 of Titus 3, Paul tells Titus, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others, and we were hating one another. Paul tells Titus this was both of their prior state, uh, or state prior to salvation. Uh, not just Titus and Paul, but all of us. And he says that we were mentally, we were morally depraved. We were lacking both sense and sensibility. We were empty-headed, empty-hearted, deceived, enslaved, oppressed, and subjugated to malevolence and hostility. That's where we were. Uh, and the, not just Paul and Titus, but the natural state of all unbelievers. If you look at verse 3, many of us can identify that's who I was prior to Christ. But then we come to a radical breakthrough in verses 4 and 5. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness by us, but according to his own mercy. So if you follow this, in stark contrast to the envy and the hatred that, were, that was espoused by the unbelieving world, Something broke in. And what was it? It was the good and loving and kind God whom Paul emphasizes is our Savior. He, when he broke in to our lawless and unbelieving rebellious state of confusion, God didn't take our good works and measure them on one side of the scale and say, okay, well, let's make sure that you've done enough good things. Or say, hey, look within. Find the answers within. Let's find the deepness within. Let's do self-realization or let's do the Enneagram. That will help save yourself. 
But God was not saying, let's put all these things on one side. And then like a cheerleader, I'm going to stand on the sidelines and go, go for it, girl. You got this. Go for it, young man. You can do this. Motivating us to save ourselves. No. Paul says he saved us. Because the truth is we cannot save ourselves. We need someone to look upon our sad state of plight and to break in and come to our rescue. And so Paul says, God did that. God appeared. The loving, kind, gracious God, our Savior, saved us, not by our works done by us, but according to his own mercy. And you know this. We've been reading Romans. He emphasizes that idea throughout the book of Romans. But notice what he says to Titus next. He says that he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this in verse six, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. And then he adds this one more clause, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, there's a radical new beginning in the life of the previously dead and disobedient. When Jesus Christ justifies us, and we know that means to declare us righteous before a holy God. And notice that Paul right here uses the exact same term in verse six about Jesus that he just did about God the Father. He says, our savior. God the Father is our savior. Verse six, Jesus Christ our savior. And so he's reiterating, you cannot, we cannot save ourselves. We must yield completely to Christ the Savior, who's justified us, made us right with the Father by his grace, and has made us inheritors of this hope that we call eternal life. But how does this begin? How does this new life begin? Well, he just explained that spiritual birth happens when the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Notice that he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So notice in verse 4, we have the person of God the Father, we have the person of Jesus the Son in verse 6, and in verse 5, we have the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want to just emphasize kind of four ideas here today. Uh, so if you're taking note, this is be our first idea, and that is that the Holy Spirit is a person. I want to emphasize this, that Paul seems to emphasize this, and I want to give you a couple verses. Uh, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, this is... Uh, what Jesus said, he said, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we refer to this alongside other helper, another helper as the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And when we refer to people, I've said this before, when we refer to people, we use pronouns to describe them. Now, the world is getting this all mixed up today. Uh, now you have to ask, what are your pronouns? Which I'm not going to do that. What are your pro- well, my pronouns are they, them. Okay, listen, not only does that offend the, Im- the imago Dei, the image of God, as male and female, that also offends my grammar nerd, okay? So when you are singular and you're using a plural pronoun, that is very frustrating. Uh, but people today, we would never say it. Right? Please pr- refer to me as it. We don't do that. And I've said that before. You want to get your wife mad, say, yes, it will make dinner for you when you come over. Right? Obviously. So we are we're not to do that, though, with the Holy Spirit. Let that sink in. We're not to use it when we refer to the Spirit. Uh, now, some of our terminology is unfortunate. We've, we've got phrases in some translations like the Holy Ghost, my grandfather, 
used to use the, the ghost. We need the ghost, the ghost, the Holy Ghost. And I think that kind of conveys that terminology of an impersonal force or wind. Um, part of what was called the Arian heresy was to imply that only the Father was truly God, that Jesus was merely a created be uh, being and the Holy Spirit was just an essence, just an it. That was, by the way, a uh, heresy that's propagated by the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Scripture's pretty clear. Look at these verses on the screen. The Holy Spirit of God has knowledge. Usually its don't have knowledge. A will, a mind. The Spirit loves, reveals, intercedes, teaches, guides. The Spirit can be grieved, can be insulted, can be lied to, and blasphemed. These can all only be referring to a person. Isn't it glorious that God did not leave us as orphans? Jesus promised, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to ask the Father, and the Spirit will come. Another helper, a person like myself. And that means that the Spirit is a distinct and co-equal person of the Trinity. The Scriptures tell us uh, in a few different places, we'll list them on the screen, that the Spirit is involved in creation. So the Spirit doesn't just show up in Acts chapter 2, which we'll read in a minute. If you think, oh, that's where the Holy Spirit shows up in the Scripture, well, you missed Genesis 1-2. The Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness of creation, just like he hovers over, so to speak, the unbelieving heart and begins to do a work, right? So the spirit was involved in creation, involved in the incarnation, involved in our salvation, which we just kind of looked at, involved in the resurrection of Christ and in judgment. Now look with me at Titus uh, verse five, chapter three. Uh, Paul tells him that the washing of regeneration and renewal came to us through the person of the Holy Spirit who God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. It was necessary for Jesus to ascend so that the Spirit could be poured out. Now, there's a couple words I want to emphasize. The, the first word is washing. Please circle that word. Washing here describes our baptism into Jesus Christ, which is simply our identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. When you were baptized, that's why we do immersion with believers, you were immersed into the water and you came up out of the water, just like Jesus was immersed in death, buried and risen again. And we identify with him. Uh, and this is spiritual, but we also commemorate this with the outward visible sign of water baptism. And that speaks of inward cleansing. So when he says you were washed, but then he says regeneration and renewal. So let's look at those words for a minute. Regeneration, I want you to circle that word. Very important theological term. And it simply means, in its simplest form, rebirth, to be made alive. Jesus told Nicodemus, the religious leader, in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, and anytime Jesus says that, you want to pay attention. You always do, but uh, this is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, religious leader, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if you know the story in John chapter 3, it's a little, not comical, but, it's, but it's, it's fascinating that this religious leader doesn't understand. So he goes, what? I have to be born again? And I'm pretty sure physics won't allow that. Um, I don't know how I, as a grown man, would be born again from a womb. And so Jesus clarifies in verse 5, again, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So there's a different work. It's a similar work to being born, but it's a, it's a much greater work. It's to be born afresh, born anew, rebirth, regenerated. And Jesus here in John 3 seems to be using the language of Ezekiel 36 to describe the work that God is going to do in this new covenant of grace. God says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is what God's going to do. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice with me from the verses on the screen that God is not going to take the dead and stony heart and just reform it or improve it. It's not going to take, let me just make this a better heart. Let's just get to work and kind of spring it into action. No, it's not reformed, it's replaced. He takes a dead heart and he gives it, he gets rid of it, gives it a new heart. This new heart is not hardened or dead, it's soft and alive. And what he's saying is, when I do the work of salvation, I am going to put my own spirit within you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause you or enable you to walk circumspectly in obedience. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the one who initiates that, and I'm going to be the one who works from within. One of my favorite verses to show this in, in real time is uh, with a woman named Lydia. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, she's the wealthy fashion designer who sold a lot of purple. Maybe you remember her. But it says in Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You see, the Spirit of God opened the heart of Lydia she responded. The Spirit regenerated her, bringing her to spiritual life. And so this is an important word for us to understand that we're, we've been given that by the Holy Spirit. But notice back in Titus 3.5, Paul also says the Spirit brings renewal. Now, that's less of a theological term. We don't hear that a lot. It's actually a very rare word. But what does it mean? It means to continue to make new. Colossians 3.10 tells us we have put on the new self, so there's kind of a putting off of the old self, putting on the new self. And the new self, he says, is constantly being renewed to be like Jesus. Now, I don't know if we have any gamers here today. Usually they wear it loud and proud. Like, yep, I'm a gamer. Uh, but when you play a game like Zelda, like clearly the greatest game ever created. Don't at me. Okay, it's true. If you play Zelda, you will eventually uh, die, you lose power, and then you'll respawn. And when that happens, immediately this new self is fully renewed. You have all of your life back, you have full power, you have fresh life, and you're ready to kind of level up to the next level. And, and I like to think of spiritual renewal in that way, that you are continually be, being given spiritual fresh vitality by the Holy Spirit of God. He's not only regenerated you, made you alive, but he's continuing to make you new. He's continuing to uh, bring spiritual vitality. And Paul tells Titus, we were saved when the Holy Spirit of God made us alive and continues to make us new. And he was poured out richly upon us. Now, I'd love for you to circle that phrase, poured out. You're going to have this whole section circled by the end. So poured out. This is an important point of our second idea here. The Holy Spirit is a person, but number two, the Holy Spirit was promised. Notice 
that the phrase pouring out is describing the Holy Spirit. This is actually a fulfillment of a glorious promise back in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. In Joel 2, 28, God says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out, same word, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, I want you to do something we're not normally used to do, and I want you to stop in Titus, and we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. So turn with me in your Bibles, or swipe with me to Acts chapter 2. We are going to get to Romans, okay? Settle down. We'll get there. But look at Acts chapter 2. Now, as you're turning to Acts 2, what we're going to read has taken place after the resurrection of Jesus, after the multiple public sightings of Jesus for 40 days, after the ascension of Jesus. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, there's about 120 or so believers, and they had been told by Jesus himself to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you'll be baptized with the Spirit not many days from now. And he explained the Spirit would endue the church with power to be witnesses not only in the city of Jerusalem, but also in the greater area of Judea, even those outside of their racial or ethnic comfort zones, a.k.a. Samaria. And so this would not be merely localized uh, geographically or ethnically. It would extend beyond Judah Gentile and beyond Jerusalem, he says, even to the ends of the earth. And we pray that and we see that even today that his, his renown has gone even to the ends of the earth. Well, look with me at verse 1. Acts 2.1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So this is the Feast of Pentecost, exactly 50 days after the Passover, when Jesus had died at Calvary. And the Pentecost feast was when Israelite farmers would bring the first fruit offerings of grain into the city of Jerusalem and celebrate there would be festivity. There would be a reading of the book of Ruth. And so there's about 120 believers. They're all in one place. And notice what happens next, verse 2. It says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We kind of know what that sounds like. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now remember, Jesus had said, not many days from now, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you'll be, you'll be empowered to be my witnesses. And so we kind of get, if you would, the first fruits of the Spirit's empowering witness right in these next few verses. It says in verse five that the, these... Uh, Jews came in from the countryside, from the surrounding area. Notice there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Okay, so just to be clear, this was not just gibberish, right? These were literal, recognizable, uttered languages. And this was astounding because the ones who were speaking the other languages and the other dialects were Galileans. They were not people you would expect to be speaking all of these specific uh, foreign dialects. One commentator said the Galileans were not the university grads in the room, okay? Uh, whether that's true or not, it's still surprising to hear someone, if you're from a small village, hey, that's the exact dialect we speak. Nobody else knows that. How do you know that? And so it says in verse seven, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear 
each of us in his own native language. And then they begin to list all of the people. Get down to verse 12. It says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, um, they're filled with new wine. And I can understand that. if you hear someone speak another language, kind of go, uh, that guy's had a few mimosas too many. I'm not sure what's happening. But what happens here is as you hear your own language, you go, wait a minute, they're not babbling. Uh, I can actually understand them. And so Peter stands up, begins to share the gospel. Look at verse 15. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here's the, the promised verse from Joel 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter says, now this isn't drunkenness. This is a fulfillment of the verse in Joel we all know that God has promised to pour out his spirit in the last days. And we're seeing that promise come to pass. Some people say, well, one day we'll be in the last days. Well, according to the Bible, we're in it. The last days began at Pentecost. And, and by the way, this is not the only place that the Spirit was promised um, in the Scriptures. Uh, some other verses, John 7, 37 and 38. Remember, Jesus said, living water will flow from within you. Uh, and this was a reference to the Spirit who had not yet been given. In John 16, Jesus promises the Spirit will come and guide us into all truth. And there's a lot more verses that time won't permit, but... The Spirit of God was promised, and God fulfilled that promise to not allow us to stay as those who are orphans, but being faithful to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to the church. So we can praise and thank the Father that we live in a time, we live in the last days, where the Spirit of God is with us and within each one of us as believers. Now, for our third point, um, I want to zoom out a little bit and kind of get a view from 30,000 feet. And we'll move a little faster here, but this idea is kind of summarizing what the Spirit does in our life. So um, this point is that the Holy Spirit is a provider. There are many activities or ministries that the Spirit of God provides to our spiritual life. And again, this is not exhaustive. We could spend much more time going through these. But have you ever stopped for a minute to think about or to give thanks to the Holy Spirit who's doing a work of provision in your life? You might say, well, what? What has the Holy Spirit done? Well, let's look through these. There's eight that I want to just cover real quick. We'll put them all up together. First of all, the Holy Spirit, we're told, if you can see it, convicts the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. So before we were believers, the Spirit of God is doing a work of conviction. Not only that, but the Spirit, as we just looked in Titus 3, regenerates, makes us alive. And there's many more verses other than Titus 3 and John 3. The Spirit of God regenerates us, makes us alive. Then we learn in Ephesians 1 that the Spirit seals us. And Ephesians 4 also corroborates the fact that you and I have been sealed with the Spirit of God. Uh, this is kind of a down payment, if you would, uh, that guarantees our inheritance. Uh, but... Number four, this is very important. The Spirit of God indwells and baptizes believers. There's one baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means to be filled with the Spirit of God at conversion. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian here today and around the world in church history has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit not only indwells us, but gifts us. And we learned that last year in our Together series where we talked about how the Spirit of God gives every believer a gift 
we have at least a spiritual gift to use to edify the church and to glorify God. Well, not only does the Spirit gift us, the Spirit guides us. So we are guided into all truth. We're reminded of what Jesus taught us. The Spirit produces fruit, Galatians 5, and we know what that list looks like. It's love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The Spirit of God is the one that produces fruit within us. You and I can cooperate with the Spirit, but it's not us. It's not the fruit of good works is love, joy, peace. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit fills us, giving us spiritual vitality uh, to be his witnesses. Now, leave that up for a minute, CJ. Notice the progression here. Notice the progression. The Son proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Spirit of God proceeds from the Father and the Son to be poured out on God's people, convicting us before we were saved and continuing to convict us after we're saved, but convicting us, then making us alive, and then sealing us, giving us that hope of assurance, then dwelling within us, baptizing us into the name of Christ, ministering to us and giving us gifts to minister to others, guiding us so we're effective for the kingdom. And then not only that, it's not like there's just outward work to do, but then producing within us the fruit of Christ's character as we continue to abide and filling us with the strength needed to walk in a manner pleasing to him. See, this is the, it's almost comprehensive, the work of the Holy Spirit from start to finish. And there's much more that the Spirit does. But Joseph Hart in 1759 wrote these words, come Holy Spirit, come. He said, tis thine to cleanse the heart, to sanctify the soul, to pour fresh life into each part and new create the whole. Dwell therefore in our hearts, our minds from bondage free. Then shall we know and praise and love the Father, Son, and Thee. You see, God has been faithful to give his church the promise of the Holy Spirit. And let me just for a moment explain this. This has nothing to do with experiences, with feelings, with fluff. This is truth. You have been filled, you've been indwelt with the Spirit of God. So rest in that truth today, whether you got the goosebumps or you didn't. This has everything to do, not with experiences, but with the person of the Holy Spirit. So we receive the provision of the Holy Spirit, which results in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's our fourth point. The Holy Spirit gives power. And that's what brings us to Romans chapter 8. Look with me. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. You see, we've studied this passage in small chunks, but we haven't done one full you could say tunnel view, one gaze of the entire vista. And so what I want us to do is we're going to read through this together. And I need your help in this. I'd like you, we don't do this a lot, but I'd like you whenever we get to the word spirit, so you got to pay attention. And we're reading from the ESV, so don't be that guy. When we get to the word spirit, let's say it out loud. Well, don't say it. Let's say spirit out loud, okay? So when we get to spirit, say it out loud. We'll just start in verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Very good. Now, if I were to summarize just these first nine verses, what do we have in one word? Uh, I would say residence. So jot that down, residence. You see, just as every Christian is in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within every Christian. In 1 Corinthians 6 and in other passages, we are taught that our bodies, our physical body, the soma, the body that you have physically, is the Spirit's temple. God's Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives us renewal. And when we set our mind on the Spirit, notice that he says we experience some things. We, there is an experiential aspect to this. We're not shying away from that. We're just not looking for it, okay? But there is an experience that we have, and that's life and peace. We experience those things as our mind is set on the Spirit. This is how we live. This is how we walk. The Spirit of God residing within us. He's been poured out upon us and indwells every believer. What is the word for a person who does not have the Holy Spirit? The word is unbeliever. Every Christian may not speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 30 makes that easily clear. And I'll, I'll die on that hill if you believe every Christian speaks in tongues. Well, 1 Corinthians 12.30, Paul says, does everyone speak in tongues? And the implied answer in his list of questions is no. Uh, so not every Christian speaks in tongues, but every Christian, every single one, has the Holy Spirit. That is both indisputable as well as comforting. Believer, rest today that the Spirit of God is at rest within you, that you have the Spirit of God residing within you. Residence. Well, how else does the Spirit empower us? We talk about having power. For uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power. And a lot of people are like, yeah, let's do this. What does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10. Again, I need your help. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This side's a little more into this right now, by the way, so I'm going to need your guys' help. Second word, if I were to summarize these few verses, this is a little bit more of a complicated word, but the word is acquiescence. Okay, and well, what does that mean? Another word is yield, to yield. What a comfort that we can acquiesce, we can yield to the Holy Spirit's strength in our sanctification. That is such an incredible comfort to know that I can rest, I can yield to the Spirit's initiation 
and strength in my sanctification. One time we were moving some friends from church and um, we, I always seem to get injured. If I ever am asked to help you move, it's a, it's a thing apparently. I always get cut, beat up, bruised, or I fall. So I don't know what it is, but <laughs> you guys have been moving with me. You're, yeah, I know. Um, well, one time some friends, we were helping them move and we, there's three of us carrying the couch and we were doing the heavy lifting. Well, then one of the little kids came up who was with us and said, oh, let me help, let me help. And he must have been five, right? And so, so sure, come on, Junior, come and help. Now, that would be ridiculous if I said, actually, I need some iced tea. Thanks, Junior. And I give him my side of the couch and go, all right, I'm going to go take a break. Obviously, that would be ridiculous because the couch would crush the poor kid. No, what do we do? We let the little tyke help us. Like, oh, yeah, come on. Oh, thanks for, oh, yeah, you're helping. He's kind of contributing his part, but honestly, we're the ones doing the heavy lifting. Am I right? So in our lives, we don't accomplish sanctification 100% in our own abilities. No, we receive life and victory through the Spirit's strength. In fact, we're exhorted in Ephesians 5.18 to seek to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? So that we can continue to submit to the work of the Spirit and receive his help in slaying our sin. It's not like, well, I received the Spirit when I believed and I'm good. No, Paul says we must continually be filled with the Spirit's strength. I mean, doesn't it strike you that the defining attribute of the Spirit of God is his holiness? Like if any word could have been put in front of Spirit, it's holy that the Scriptures, that the Son emphasizes It's holy that God wants us to truly grasp, that he is set apart, that he is unique and distinct from all creation. And he's called us to have the spirit of God set us apart, to make us into his image, to sanctify us, to produce renewal and to enable us to walk in obedience. So we can acquiesce. We can say, yes, Lord, I yield to the work of your spirit in my life. Well, let's read the next few verses. Verse 14. It's a bit, little bit of bigger section. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. That, some of you tried to do it there. Don't do it. With our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." What else does the power of the Spirit give us? According to these verses, in the midst of a corrupted, confusing, groaning creation, we have, in a word, assurance. 
You see, the Holy Spirit assures us of our sonship by adoption, testifying to us and for us that we are indeed God's children. He's not left us as orphans. No, God's Spirit settles the debate in our hearts when our conscience condemns us. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, the deposit given at the beginning of the harvest, which guarantees there is much more to come. And one day, we will exchange cross for crown, suffering for glory. The not yet will merge with the already as we see the final redemption and restoration of the new heavens and the new earth when Christ consummates his glorious kingdom. And so for this, we have a sure hope, even though we don't see it. Well, what else does the Spirit empower us with? Let's keep reading. He's going to do the whole chapter. Yes, we are. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The Holy Spirit gives the believer, number four, assistance. You see, the word that Jesus uses to describe the Spirit is the Greek word paraclete. And and the the way that's translated is the helper, the, the helper that comes alongside you, comes to your assistance, comes to your side, comes to your aid, helps you in your human limited frailties. And here Paul emphasizes that he comes alongside to pray for God's will even when we can't find the right words. He he picks up where human knowledge and human words fail us, escape us, and he prays for us. So you're not left by yourself to pray. And thankfully, we aren't left to ourselves to save ourselves. We see this glorious golden chain of redemption where we've already been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And all of that began with the work of the Spirit sent from the Father and the Son to make us alive. So we have, listen, we have assurance. We have assistance. We have acquiescence in our sanctification, and it's all available to us as the Holy Spirit takes up his rightful residence within us. Now, looking back at the entire chapter, let's do our best to look just at one big application point. If I were to say, here's the one thing we need to walk away with today. And that would be this. And that is that we would yield to the Holy Spirit. Are you doing this? As a Christian, you have the Spirit of God, but are you submitting? Are you yielding? Spurgeon said, all the hope of our ministry lies in the Spirit of God operating on the spirits of men. You know, we aren't trying to provide some sort of experience on Sunday morning. You know that. There's no lights and pizzazz. Well, we do have a few lights. We're not trying to create some sort of atmosphere. We're not trying to preach with eloquence to impress. Wow, the words of eloquence. I'm so impacted by the poetry. No, all the hope of our ministry 
Not in our convincing. Well, I'm going to give an apologetic argument. That'll really drive the point home. What can you do when the mic is dropped and you've got truth in your face? No. We're not working from the place of the flesh trying to conjure up the work of God. No, we're relying on the work of the Spirit of God operating on the spirits of men. So if that's the case in our ministry, how about in our sanctification? How about the hope of your marriage? Like, we're not going to live a victorious Christian life trying to empower ourselves. That's like unplugging a television and then hoping that the TV will somehow produce power from within itself. Right? The power is not found within us. It's found within the Spirit who's found within all believers. And J.I. Packer said, all who are realistic about themselves are from time to time overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy. All Christians time and again are forced to cry, Lord, help me, strengthen me, enable me, give me power to speak and act in a way or in the way that pleases you. Make me equal to the demands and pressures which I face. You see, within Romans 8, we learn we belong to Christ or that belonging to Christ means to have the spirit. But being in Christ is not to escape pain, suffering, or pressure. And we know some preach that gospel, don't they? They preach, hey, come to Jesus and you'll stop suffering. But the truth of the gospel is an invitation to come and suffer with Christ. So in this broken, in this fallen cosmos, we will suffer. But even in the suffering, the Holy Spirit assures us of our sonship and assists us in our weakness. So the battle we are fighting, in that battle we're enabled to become more than conquerors. We take our enemies and we make them our helpers. Amy Carmichael once penned these words. She said, sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I shall never be like that. But they won through step by step by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories by faithfulness in very little things. They became what they are. They didn't just overnight become it. She says, no one sees these little hidden steps. They only see the accomplishment, but even so, those small steps were taken. There's no sudden triumph. This or that is the work of the moment. And I would add that's the work of the Spirit. In those small moments, when no one's around, we must yield to the Spirit's work, the Spirit's help, the Spirit's guidance, and the Spirit's power. He's our divine helper. He was given to the church to make us more like Jesus. So as we close today, wouldn't you agree the only natural response to the glorious salvific work of the Spirit who continues today to renew us and to empower us, the best thing we can do is just conclude by reading the rest of Romans chapter 8 and then sing about the gospel, right? That's the best thing we can do. So let's stand together. And if you have your Bibles, keep it with you. Let's read the end of Romans 8. Romans 8, 31 to the end says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is uh, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, join with me as we say together these last two verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can nothing separate us from his love? Because we've been born again and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. You and I, we have a divine helper So let's pray together. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do a new work in our lives individually and in our lives corporately this morning. Bow your heads with me. I'm going to read a Puritan prayer called the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. And let's agree together as we pray this prayer. O blessed Spirit, to whom I owe such unspeakable mercies, let me, Lord, contemplate you today as the gracious, kind, compassionate comforter. For you are the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And with mercy, you sympathize with all the followers of Jesus in our afflictions, both of soul and body. How tenderly you show us our sins and lead us to the blood of Jesus to wash them away. How sweetly you visit, encourage, strengthen, instruct, lead, and guide us into all truth. And how powerfully at times, by your restraining grace, You enable us to put to death the deeds of the body that we may live. Holy, blessed, almighty comforter, continue your visits to us. Come, Lord, and abide with me and be with me forever. Prove that you are the scent of the Father and of the Son by coming to me in the name of Jesus, by teaching me all the precious things concerning Jesus, and by acting as the one who reminds us of Jesus. In you and by your blessed work, I may know and live in the sweet enjoyment of fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, through the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We thank you for our triune God. Father, thank you for promising and fulfilling that promise that the Spirit would be given, that we would not be left as orphans. So Holy Spirit, we submit to your sanctifying work in our lives that all things may glorify the Son, We worship you, Jesus, today for being our living hope. And we thank you that as we sing the song, we're reflecting on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And the Spirit makes application to our lives, the work of Christ. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.